When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Very special guest on the show. I'm a huge Fright Night fan. Ryan is sitting in front of my Fright Night poster signed by Tom Holland, who is also coming on the podcast to talk about horror. But today, we have a great guest. I mean, you know him from Fright Night. I mean... Being married to Susan Sarandon once. <laughs> well, that's, well <laughs> among other things. That's true. Princess Bride... Uh, I mean, look, he's done so much work. I mean, he was nominated for an Oscar. We're going to get that. We're going to get into all that. Chris Sarandon is here, but don't go just yet. Don't, don't fast forward just yet. Uh, Ryan, you have a good week? I did. Uh, I did a I did a comedy roast over the weekend for someone, How was that? someone's birthday. He wanted to get roasted for his birthday. Did you roast him good? I did. And then he had to roast everyone else on the panel. It was fun. I had to do I did a little roast song. Did someone roast you? Oh, I got roasted. You got hurt? Oh. Ha- hammered? Oh, yeah. In ways I didn't think possible. Oh, really? And also in ways I thought possible. Do you get upset when people roast you? Uh, no. I mean, this it, it's all in the good spirit of it. I mean, yeah. I, I got everyone. Uh, everyone else got me. Uh, I think a good one was uh, I look like uh, someone tried to draw Walter Jr. from Breaking Bad from scratch. I could see that. Yeah. But they said Walter I looked, Jr. It looked like a rough you guys draft call him Walter Jr. I could see that. That's I've, amazing. I've heard that a lot before. That's amazing. I can totally see that. I never thought that until yeah. just now. Uh-huh. Uh, I was at uh, James Gunn's wedding, James, and, uh, James Gunn and Jennifer Holland. They got married, and uh, I was one of the people who introduced them, and it was a lo- it was the best wedding I've ever been to in my life. I've never seen such a beautiful wedding ever, and great people there. I knew many of the people that were there, so it was really nice, and uh, you know, Jan got up at the end and gave a uh, beautiful, heartfelt speech. Everybody was in tears, just beautiful. And uh, she said, and thank you to Sarah Sanderson and to Michael Rosenbaum for introducing us. But when they meant she said my name, all the guys from the bachelor party just went, boo, boo. And it was just, everybody looked at me and I was like, what the fuck? It was like, well, Rosenbaum, you're the first person to ever get booed at a wedding. But uh, it was it was a treat. Um, I don't do great with altitude, but I uh, survived it. And uh, it was glorious. I just went and visited my grandmother. She's 94. She lives in a uh, assisted living home, sort of an assisted. It's really nice, actually. And she likes it, which is most important. But, you know, at the end, when they dropped me off at the hotel, it was last night. Mm-hmm. And uh, she just touched my face and she just said, my boy, my boy, I love you so much, Michael. Don't ever forget that. And it was just like one of those moments where I'm like, is this the last time I'm going to see her? I hope not, but I know that time is coming. So it made me think, just tell people you love them. Just be present. Be, it's like, again, being in the moment, not waiting till it's too late. Of course, my grandmother would have known I loved her anyway. But uh, and then today I just got off a plane, so I'm a little out of it. I took a little nap, was with Blanche. She just brightens my day. You know, it's so weird. I'm like a parent because parents show their, oh, look at my child. Isn't he the cutest? I constantly now show pictures of Blanche, my not my grandma, my Blanche, my dog. And people are, I'm like, they're like, oh, great. I mean, I constantly do that. Is that weird? Yeah. It is weird. Well, like, will you treat your dog like a child? 
No, that I show everyone pictures of my dog constantly. I mean, that that's kind of the same thing. But I mean, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> but it, she's a cute pup. I don't blame you. She is. She's an angel. Hug the ones dearest to you, folks. Uh, I've been meditating. I hope you've been taking care of yourself, Ryan. You've been going to therapy still. Yep. Better so, helping. Uh-huh. Yeah. Great. I mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and obviously, you know, BetterHelp's a sponsor, and they're awesome. They've been with me. I want to. I want to just take a, t- a second to say thank you, BetterHelp. Thank you for being a sponsor and staying with us. And I think a lot of times we talk about mental health and our well-being and BetterHelp's just perfect fit. And I think that's why they stick around and that's why uh, it just a, it's, it works. It's a nice relationship. So thank you. Our socials, please follow us and write a review if you like the podcast. It helps substantially. Our handles are at Inside of You Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, at Inside of You Pod on the Twitter we look forward to reading your review, and hopefully you'll follow us and see what we're up to. Uh, if you want any merch, go to the Inside You Online store. we got great new stuff and great new stuff coming. Autograph scripts, lunch boxes from Smallville that they're selling out. you got to get this Smallville lunchbox. They're pretty badass. Tumblers, other great stuff. Uh, Inside of You online store. And if you want to become a patron, the patrons really save this show. They also save Talkville. They're really, you guys, without you, I've told you this before. I just talked to the patrons on YouTube Live. We do that every month. And uh, I always thank them. But uh, I hope they know that I'm sincere. Go to patreon.com slash inside of you to support the podcast. There's different tiers, different things that I send to you, personal notes, yada, yada, yada. Thank you, guys. And also, I'll be in San Francisco, Columbus, and Pittsburgh at the end of November and into December. So uh, try to come see me. And uh, I'm also on a cameo and all that jazz. Uh, That's it. That's really all I got. We should probably get into this. Is there anything else I need to say? No, let's get into it. Let's get into the legendary. I love this guy. I really do love him. Um, I'm going to go on his talking podcast. He's got a, a he's starting a, a podcast about eating, you know, foods, mm-hmm. and so he wants me to be on the show. So I'll nice. Be. Let's get inside of Chris Sarandon. It's my point of view. You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Inside of you with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. Hey, Chris, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Doing great. Just had a birthday, which was uh, a seminal one. Thank you, by the way, for your birthday greeting. And um, uh, it was both shocking on the one hand and also very kind of freeing and revelatory in a lot of ways. Really? I mean, I can't, I look at you, I never look at you and see 80 years old. There's just, there's just no way. What What, can I tell you? I I just, I just turned 50 and I'm, I'm freaking out. I think I'm having a midlife crisis. Did you have a midlife crisis when you turned 50? Oddly enough, along the way on those, you know, those uh, uh, kind of what signpost uh, birthdays, the 30, 40, 50, 60, uh, it didn't really hit me. This one really hit me. It did. Yeah. How so? Major. Major. How so? Well, because, you know, you, you, you think, it's just as you said to, to me, you don't look 80. Well, that's the juxtaposition of how you look and feel to a certain extent. And also what your chronological age is to the, to the world is, I mean, this is a, like a major, uh-oh, he's on his way out kind of really that's how you feel because you i mean no i don't feel that way i'm saying that's the way the world sees it and so you you know you can't help but but uh uh pick up on uh, uh, 
the the cultural attachments of certain certain ages. Right. So you're telling me you don't feel eighty? No. <laughs> Whatever eighty is supposed to feel like, I don't. No. How do you feel? I, I feel. Um, I have what <laughs> what my what my wife wonderfully calls the you know I I play the organ recital with my friends who are my age or younger a little younger, uh, the organ recital being oh uh, yeah you know that I I've got that my I have herniations in my disc, and uh, let's see I have a hip rep- you know you can go on and on when yeah. you get to be a certain age where you've had so many things happen uh, in your life but you've also had so many wonderful things incredible things happen. Uh, along the way right i mean you've had i mean i look and how many people could say they've been in so many big movies that everyone knows like you know i i I know you know that i'm the biggest fright night fan but like the princess bride and child's play and nightmare before christmas and dog Mm. day afternoon and like it goes on and on and uh it's got a, it's, it's cool to have such a legacy to have, you know, to have so much work that you've done that so many people out there have appreciated and love you for. I'm really proud of it. And at the same time, it, I'm, I'm, um, I'm sometimes aghast and, and kind of, whoa, wait a minute, this happened to me? <laughs> I almost, I mean, I remember it. I remember it happening. Right. But, but the, um, the the cultural the the waves that go out in the culture yeah. from particular pieces of work uh it's astonishing to me just how much uh just how much resonance they have with people yeah i met you at a convention one of these yeah. comic cons yeah. you and, and i met at a convention That's yeah right. and uh i was just i first of all i was just so amazed by how you know because when you watch you know, when I watch you in all these roles, I'm like, God, he's so charming. I wonder how he is in real life. And you were incredibly charming and so easy to talk to and laid back. It's like, you know, you don't seem affected. Have you always been like that? Were you ever, were you ever a pompous Chris Sarandon? <laughs> uh, at one point, actually, I think I was. Uh, this happened, I think, after the uh, I was nominated for Academy Award for Dog Day Afternoon, right? Yes. And then I was offered a lot of movies. I turned down a bunch of movies, but I did a few. Uh, and I was doing TV. I was doing like Hallmark Hall of Fame stuff, and I was doing. Uh, I played Jesus for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> and and I also played Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay in the, the Tale of Two Cities, and I was really fucking full of myself. <laughs> And and I got a script called Fright Night, right? An offer to do this movie, and and I said to myself as I uh, picked up and looked at the 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 title of it uh, on the cover page, oh, I, I can't do a movie called Fright Night. I'm a terribly important actor, <laughs> right? And so and so, uh, but but you know these people, they they offered me the role, and you offer you 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 owe them the courtesy of reading it, and I started reading it, and within like five minutes. I was completely sucked in. And by the time I finished the script, I said, I have to do this. I got to meet these people. And it it, it taught me a lesson, uh, which is, you know, the old bromide, don't love, judge a book by its cover. Don't right. judge a screenplay by its title. Right. Uh, and, and also, um, art comes in many forms. And I've always considered that when I first start, I first started in the theater. Yes. And I've have continued to do theater throughout my career. And that keeps you grounded uh, because you are in a, a, a medium that forces 
you to collaborate with people in a totally different way than it does in the movies and television. Uh, as you know, you know, in television and movies, very often you are part of the machine. Yes. And, and the machine is inexorable. It, it just moves with you or without you. Uh, whereas in the theater, you are really integral to the, the, the performance of this particular uh, moment in time. And you do it live, which is a, an astonishing thing yeah. to stand before an audience and, and be somebody else and have that kind of level of communication. And this is sort of a long-winded answer to your no, question. I love it. But, Please keep them long-winded. But but, but I, I, from the very beginning, I, I, when I graduated from uh, theater school, if you want to call it that, I got a, a master's degree in, in theater, uh, a performing degree. And from the time I graduated, all I wanted to do was to be, have a career. And I've had a career. Yeah. So I... I it, and along the way, different shit happens. You know, you you do a play, you you go on tour, you travel, or you or you're at home for a long time. I have a a story that I tell all the time about uh, one of my children who was at the time I think she was like five or six, and she and a friend were having a pizza or an ice cream or something with the the friend's mom, and um, and they were talking about what their daddies did, and and the uh, other, the woman talked. Went to talk to her daughter. She said, you know what daddy does, don't you? And her daughter said, yeah, he makes wires in houses. That's this woman says, that's right. He's an electrician. And she turned to my daughter and she said, you know what your daddy does, don't you? And my daughter, Alexis, said, yeah, he looks for work. <laughs> well, that's the that's the experience of being <laughs> an experience, actor. Yes. And, and that also keeps you humble. Right. Uh, and the fact that you have to audition for people and that you're rejected constantly, no matter what level you're at. You know, you read stories all the time, I'm sure, about famous actors who had to fight for a role and didn't get it. Right. At the height of their fame. Yeah. So, you know, you can't take it too terribly seriously. If you do, you're, you won't have a very good time being an actor. Were you a popular kid in high school growing up? Were you always the good-looking athlete or did you get in the theater in high school? What were and yeah, and I also, also want to know like what your upbringing was. But how were your parents? Because they worked in restaurants, right? My dad uh, and his brother, but, but my dad started it, owned a restaurant in a in a coal mining town in West Virginia uh, called Beckley, West Virginia. And so I grew up playing a role in a way because uh, I was the son of Greek immigrant. I was a first generation uh, uh, American. In right. fact, when my parents would take me places where they would get together with other Greeks, because there were no Greeks in my hometown, they would parade me up to people and say, okay, tell them what you are. And I would say, I'm 100% American and full-blooded Greek. <laughs> and that was the dichotomy of my growing up in this town. And that is that my parents spoke Greek at home. We ate Greek. We lived that way. Um, all my relatives were Greek. But when I went to school... I was somebody. I was. I had to be somebody else. And so, it, to to the answer to the question is, I was popular. But I was popular because I set out to be popular. Because I knew that if I didn't, that I would be a, perhaps at least this was in my imagination that I'd be ostracized in some wow. way because I was different. So so I played that role for a long time, and in fact, all the way through college. Not all the way, but like halfway through college. I was I was in politics. 
wow. at at my university at Western University. I was on you know I was the the uh, the uh, coordinator of homecoming weekend. I was in the sophomore uh, honorary because I made good grades. I was uh, I I was a coordinator of leadership conference. I was going to be the student body president. So you were confident. I, you had a lot of confidence. Well, under that conf- <laughs> that under that patina of confidence was uh, insecurity of I'll be discovered if I don't keep playing this role. And it wasn't until I first appeared on a stage in a, in a, with a, you know, a sizable audience that I went, Oh, (laughs) I hear I can pretend and it's accepted. And I don't have to, I don't have to uh, make excuses for it to myself. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Inside of you is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. This is an amazing platform. I use it on both podcasts. It has worked wonders for me. It's so amazing how easy it is to navigate. If you want to sell products, t-shirts, soap scents, whatever, whatever it is, Ryan, you want to sell, this is the way to do it. Uh, you could see what your best seller is right there, analytics, uh, how much you're making this month, uh, what products are selling the best. It's really fantastic. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to, to the did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash inside, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash inside now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash inside. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Did you uh, did you deal with uh, any anxiety growing up, being that you felt like you had to cover up, oh, like you had oh, this false bravado? I have to prove oh, that I'm somebody else. Absolutely, all the time. That was my constant uh, um, struggle when I was growing up. Plus, plus there was uh, uh, there was friction at home. My dad was an old fashioned Greek, and my mom was a very lively, much younger bride uh, and uh, uh he was he constantly he he was psychologically abusive and she had lots of uh um psych- psychosomatic problems because of it 
And um, my, my it's a complicated story. I, I, I'm actually writing a memoir, and I'll, I'll get into that more. Oh wow! Perhaps if anybody listening reads yes, it someday, please. they'll see. But it, but but yeah, I was. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why I ultimately became an actor. I think me too. I think that there was so much. I talked about this recently, but yeah. the chaos that was going on in my house, it just did. did I, I, I wanted, I actually became, I, I would stay at my friend's house and their parents would sort of be my parents. I would spend yeah. weeks there or, or nights there. And I just didn't really want to be home all the time. And it was just kind of, it was kind of crazy. And mm -hmm. I didn't think it really affected me as a child. But when you get older, you start to have certain issues and things start to come out and you realize, wow, I was anxious. I was, I was living in a you know i was i was under a lot of stress and i didn't realize mm -hmm. it and that's how yeah. you felt yeah I, and i didn't realize it either until later how much later uh the first time i went into therapy when was that oh gosh that was when my first marriage was breaking up and uh, i was i was sh completely kind of gobsmacked by it and didn't you know totally unexpected i didn't understand what was going on and so i needed to talk to somebody and i i went to see this actually terrific therapist uh and a lot of this stuff started to kind of bubble to the surface uh and um and that's when i started talking about it and i'm still talking about it i'm talking about it with you yeah right now it's, it's freeing isn't it when you start to let these things out or start to understand oh, what yeah. may have caused these issues or cause a certain way you act and act yep. out and say things yep. and like why am i doing this and i'm oh i'm wow i sound like my father i sound like uh, you know yep. you're a product of your own environment so yep. having to deal with it's also very tough i'm sure uh it, it was pretty emotional for you Oh, uh, uh, tremendously. Uh, uh, but out of crisis comes um, understanding and uh, a certain kind of, what, a peace with whatever it was that happened that was the catalyst for the crisis, you know. Uh, and uh, if you haven't been through it, then if you haven't been through any crises in your life, first of all, I don't know anybody who hasn't. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anyone. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're all kind of brothers and sisters in that regard, that we all have that in common. Humanity does. Right. Some of us recognize it, some of us don't. But I, I think one of the things about being an actor is that it, it says to people, look, this is, do you see something of yourself in this situation or in this character? Uh, and that's the great gift that we're able to, to share with people. Yeah. I feel like uh, a lot of my things, the things that came out were ego, a lot of ego things. I was upset by things because maybe they didn't go my way or I wasn't in control. Um, yeah. You, you talked about your first marriage. Was that something that wasn't your choice that you didn't want a divorce? Uh, at the time? No. But, uh, but in retrospect, it was the best thing that could have happened for me at that time uh, because it made me look at some things that I'd never looked at before, that I'd taken for granted. Right. You know, ways that I uh, dealt with uh, uh, other people, with women uh, uh, in particular, which kind of mirrored my relationship with my mom, if you yeah. get into the kind of the therapeutic part of it. Right. Um, so uh, it, it was revelatory. I didn't necessarily completely learn my lesson the first time. Yeah. So I had we to don't get married again. Yeah. I had to get married again. Right. And uh, and and ended up uh, happily for a time, and also having children, which yeah. was really important to me. And I have three kids now, and I have nine grandchildren. Wow! 
my children are grown up and I have, you know, this passel of grandchildren that are just the, the delight of my life. Uh, and then that marriage ended in a kind of crisis situation that was actually the catalyst was financial trouble. Ah, uh, that on that time. And uh, and now I'm married for, uh, well, married for more than 25 years, but wow. together with my, my wife, Joanna, for over 30 years. We're together for 30 years. That's amazing. And we live, we have a wonderful life. We have these grandchildren. So it, all of that, if, if it ha- my first marriage hadn't ended, this, this life that I'm living now wouldn't have existed. Isn't that something? So when something bad happens, you have to know that you're going to learn from it and hopefully something yeah. good from it that's meant to be, if you believe Absolutely. in all that, is going to happen. Yeah. And the, your first wife was Susan Sarandon, obviously. Correct. And I didn't yeah. know that till I read about it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and she took your name, right? She did. Yeah. <laughs> and she still, she still owes me. <laughs> there's, there's, do you guys even talk or was it? Was it was we it, haven't. We haven't talked in a long time, uh, although we do stay in touch uh, uh, occasionally because I had a, a very strong relationship. She's one of a number of children. She's the oldest of eight or nine. I can't remember now how many, but I, I had a relationship with all of her siblings when I was she and I were married. And so uh, I, I and her parents, whom I knew well, uh, and actually her mom ended up being a friend of my mom's post. Wow. This is like, you know, maybe 15 years ago um, so, because they lived in the same town and they ended up connecting. But um, uh, no, we, we don't we're not in sort of constant touch. I think one of the reasons probably is we didn't have children together. Right. Whereas whereas my uh, ex Lisa and I have three kids together and we're still, you know, we, they, we have Thanksgiving together. Wow. She and her husband come down with their kids because they've had a couple of kids since uh, uh, Lisa and I divorced. And we all get together and we hang out and she and my uh, Joanna are good friends. That's We're, that is, you don't hear that very often. It sounds yeah. to me like even with the first marriage with Susan, it sounds like there's really no ill will. You've let no, bygones be bygones. No. You've sort of that's that's rare. Usually no, no, I was, hear horror stories in Hollywood that they hate each other. They don't talk. I could tell you about my no. parents haven't talked in over 20 years. They wouldn't want to see each other. It's no. not fun. No, it was very, very amicable. We, in fact, Susan and I used the same lawyer for our divorce. Really? We we went to one person as a kind of arbitrator, and he kind of worked things out for us financially. And uh, and uh, post the the uh, separation, she went to the Oscars with me when I was nominated. What? She was my date. Yeah, that's yeah. that's remarkable. Yeah, it's very. She she was great. She's she is great. She's a remarkable woman. Yeah, that's pretty special. I mean, were you one of those actors who once you started doing theater and you hear this a lot where that's all I want to do. I'm a theater actor. I'm an actor. I don't want to do movies. Or were you always sort of thinking ahead of the game like, hey, hopefully this leads me to what was your dream? What were were you thinking? I I, I think the latter. I think that there there was a a hope that I'd have a career in all the mediums, particularly in, in movies, because I've been a movie lover since I was young. Uh, and uh, have only become more so as I've gotten older. And I I have a veneration, a, a, a kind of worship for the history of film, and and uh, or or as it was called at the time when I'm the biggest fan of the 30s, 40s, 50s, but mostly you know that golden age of the 30s and 40s, right? Uh, of motion pictures. 
Who were your influences? Who were who were the actors that you admired that you wanted to? I, I don't know if emulates the right word, but sort of like wanted to say, I want to be someone like that. Uh, when I first started, it was uh, Olivier. It was wow. Lawrence Olivier, uh, who was a theater actor, but who worked in films, and and who was a character actor, even though he was a leading man. And I knew that I didn't look like a character actor, but I felt like one because I had a, a facility with. You know, with with accents, I had a, a great ear, so I'm really good with accents. I have a, a facility of, of of observation and and of of curiosity, uh, and I've always thought of myself as a character actor, never as a leading man. What uh, accents can you do? What, but I know you could do the English accent really well. But like, what other ones can you, can you easily just jump into? Well, I I can do lots of accents of people who don't speak English <laughs> as a as a first language. Right. You know, I have a great Italian accent because I was in a play where I had to be an Italian um, uh, aberdasher, a man who sold great, wonderful clothes. All right. It's amazing. I also, obviously, I do a very. I can do my father. Let's do you the know, father. Had, we got to hear my, the father. My father. My father was. He had very strong Greek accent, and he was uh, a. Um, he was very. He was a quiet man. My father. Uh, <laughs> that um, is. Can you do Scottish? Oh, that's one that I I um, I I won't even attempt because it's uh, it's not very good. My Scottish <laughs> it's accent. It's not good, but wow! Uh, I used to do a great North Country accent because I did a play in England. Uh, I did a North Country play when I was much younger. Uh, I don't remember it terribly well, so I, I I'm not going to embarrass myself here. But um, I, I just always, you know, of course, New York, you gotta yeah. you gotta have that one, you know, in your pocket. Yeah, uh, and Chicago. I, I played a cop, a Chicago cop. You just, um, you still got it. I mean, it's like, it, play. Yeah. wow. But that, to me, that was what was, you know, was attractive about Olivia is because he changed. He was a chameleon. Uh, as I got older, I started appreciating more the people who were, uh, who worked a little more organically than Olivia did, who, who was, he always said it was, uh, he had to create the outside and then the inside came. Right. Uh, I, I started learning that the inside is more important and uh, the outside, you, you can always, you know, you can always paint with colors on the outside, but the inside has to come from some experience. Right. What about so when you're first transitioning from theater to TV? Didn't you do a, a, a soap opera for a while? Oh, yeah. That was my first job when I got to New York. I got a soap opera almost right away. I mean, it was unheard of. You auditioned and immediately got it. I, I got it. But of course, I was... <laughs> I played, I played the guy who was scrubbing in the in the pre-op as the lead actors came through on their way to the operating room. Awesome. And basically, my line was "Good morning, doctor." That was my line. <laughs> but didn't you? But didn't you become a regular? Uh, no, I was a part. I was basically. I was like a. You know, I was. I was. Um, I was guaranteed an episode and a half a week. For two hundred and seventy-five dollars an episode, so I made like three hundred and fifty bucks a week, which paid my rent. Wow! And my rent was only two two fifty or something like that in a one-bedroom apartment in New York, if you can believe it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and then I got a Broadway show of the Rothschilds, and uh, you know I was in that for almost a year, and then I started doing theater again. Uh, and then I got, I was replaced somebody else in a, I replaced Raul Julia in a Broadway musical. Wow. I'd never done a musical before. So you were getting a lot of attention in the Broadway scene. 
They were yeah. the, your name yeah, was getting I guess. known. I was starting to anyway. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. And, and then what, and then Dog Day happened. How did Dog Day happen? I mean, did you obviously audition for it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Did you who'd you audition for? Sidney Lamet, the director, right. and uh, and Al Pacino, and the producers Marty Elfond and uh, Marty Bregman. Marty Bregman was Al's yes. manager, I think, at the time. Were you nervous in the room? Well, you know, it's such a cool I'd, character who's kind of like the nerves get to him anyway, in a way. Well, actually, it's interesting because it. I don't know about you, I, I, and you t- tell me when you read something that really fits and you understand it, and you know what you're doing, then the nerves are there, but it's not about, oh my God, I'm going to fuck this up. It's more about, oh man, I, I have to ride this. Right. I have to ride this at the moment. I have to feel that, I have to really get into this right now. And the nerves help. Yeah. They're, they don't help when you're when you're unsure. Now, do, do you do anything to prepare before you go into a room? When you're about to go into a room, is there something you do, any kind of practice that you have, any breathing, or do you just go? You don't think about it. If, uh, if I'm prepared, I basically just go. Uh, yeah, it doesn't really, uh, I don't think it necessarily, I mean, you know, I, I got advice one time, a long time ago when I was a young actor of just think of them when you walk in the room, think of them sitting on a toilet. Everybody you're auditioning for. Perfect. That's the common denominator. We all have to take a dump at some point <laughs> in our lives, right? And, yes. And they're not, you know, there's nothing extra special about these people. But yeah. for the Dog Day audition, it was really interesting because, first of all, this was it was a great script. Yeah. Uh, it won an Academy Award. It was, it was nominated for eight Academy Awards, I think, and it won for Best Screenplay. Frank Pearson. Right. Right. And uh, and I immediately understood this character, and I, I think part of that was understanding the otherness of somebody who is a, 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 his body is foreign to him. Yeah. And in my case, my psyche was kind of foreign. I was, you know, I was this Greek American, one hundred percent American, full blooded Greek, and so I understood. Uh, uh, Leon Shermer is the name of the Leon guy in Shermer, the movie. Yeah. And I, I just got it. And uh, so I went in very prepared. Did you uh, read actually, with Al? Did you read with I Al? I read with Al. Yeah. Yeah. We, re- we read the telephone scene. Right? The telephone scene. I, I love that scene because you're like, you're holding your buttons on your shirt or something. You're like, that comes from a, I stole that from a photograph of the guy coming, being let out of the police car and his clutching his robe around him to, to wow. maintain his privacy, you know? Yeah. I just thought um, it was like a nervous, cool little tick yeah, that yeah, you were yeah. doing. I stole it. I stole it. <laughs> Did you, when you, hey, let me ask you, when you finish this audition and you're, you just read with Al, did, did right. you get any sort of affirmation or any kind of like, well, I, it was obvious that it was going well. And Sidney Lamut came over to me and he gave me the best note I think probably I've ever gotten from a director. What was it? He said, because I was playing it very sort of Blanche Dubois, <laughs> right? Right. And Sidney said, a little less Blanche Dubois, a little more Queen's housewife when you come back. Wow. And that was the note that went, oh, 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 okay. All right, now I know how to locate this guy. And also that he's not this this what this um elevated queen he was a queen's housewife wow 
and you just it, you knew exactly what he wanted at that. So moment. the next time I came in, I read with Alan. I did, you know, I was it was uh, I was talking, you know. Wow, that is yeah. so cool. I could just I yeah. I could just see the room. I mean, did you know after that the, the next time you read, was there something that made you go, "I got this fucking thing." Yeah. Yeah. What was it? Just that the, you know, there was a real sort of palpable sense of of everybody being genuinely uh we really liked that. That was great. And, and you don't often have that in an audition because no. people always play it so cool. Yeah. You know? But you let it all out there. You're like, this is the role. This is the part. And I think there's something to be said about um, when you audition and you get the part, you know that that's what they want. But when you get an offer for a movie, and I've had some, you know, a few offers here and there, yeah. TV offers. Yeah, yeah. But you get there and you're like, uh, what what part of me do they want here? Uh, you know, and you're unsure of yourself. And then if they don't yeah. want it, it's, it's, it's almost like an audition, believe it or not, even though I hate auditioning, is better. How do you feel about that? I, I don't know that auditioning is necessarily better. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe if if the circumstances are like the one that I just described, but you don't often have that kind of experience. I, I mean, you know, especially early in my career when I go into auditions, I I, I, I felt you know totally disoriented. I didn't right. know what the hell was going on. Uh, and after a while, you know, you kind of get the feel for what it's like to go in a room and and impress people, quote unquote, impress. Uh, and the best way to do that is to be prepared and to to know the character. Right. And the, always the the most disastrous auditions are the ones where I don't know who this person is. Yeah. Or you don't, don't know the material, a, or you don't know the material well yeah, enough. Yeah. Or I, I don't really have a line into who this person is. This Somehow. was your this was your first audition for a film at this point, or no? Was this the first uh, role you got? First film? Uh, role? It was the first role I got. I don't remember. I probably auditioned for things before that. Uh, I don't remember, quite frankly. <laughs> it's been so long. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but th this was the first, definitely the first big role I got. A big role, not really a big role. Really were you, were, were you, were you surprised when you got nominated for an Academy Award for it? I was. I was grateful. I wasn't totally surprised because I was getting a lot of positive feedback when the movie came out that it was a, you know, that it had an impact, right. particularly this, uh, the phone scene right. uh, with, with Al. And a lot of that, oddly enough, uh, despite the fact that it was a great script, uh, a lot of that scene was improvised around the original writing of the scene. That is, that Al and I, Sidney Lumet always rehearses her rehearsed his movies yeah. and this one uh, dog day rehearsed for like two or three weeks wow like a like a play you know there were the the furniture was taped out on the floor there were you know props uh and uh al and i were sitting and reading the phone scene the first time and we were reading it through together and we both had the same reaction which was uh my wife who's a wonderful amazing acting teacher she calls uh Putting a uh, putting a hat on a hat when something's already there when the situation is melodramatic you don't need to play melodrama the writing doesn't have to be melodramatic the situation takes care of that right and and in the original writing of that scene it was high drama immediately calling each other names pissed off because their relationship in real life these two guys was highly volatile right you know I mean crazy shit yeah. that went on between these guys yeah. right. 
uh, and they ultimately they got married in a church wedding and and Leon was you know full bride regalia I have a photo of that by the way which is quite I have a story about that too Oh you might At have to rate, send that you might have to uh, send that uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and so we both thought you don't have to start the scene at at, at uh, DEFCON 1. The scene should start with, you know, two people who haven't seen each other a while, in a while, and what's going on? How you doing? <laughs> Basically. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, you know, and then you start kind of, because they've known each other for years. It's not like this is a, a new uh, event for them, speaking on the phone. But then the melodrama sort of evolves in the scene. And Alan and I started riffing on what it might be like if we started it differently. And so he said, wait, 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 wait. And he got somebody with a tape recorder. And so we recorded one with the information that was in Frank Pearson's scene, but we kind of redid it, just reshuffled it a bit, right? And when we finished, Sydney said, okay, here, this is missing. We need this information, so-and-so. And then we did another improv. And they recorded that one. And then we did a, like maybe two or three more. And then all of us got together, as I recall, in Marty Bregman's office one evening. And we looked through all the scripts and we collated them into one. And that's the scene that's in the movie. Wow. That never happens. Rarely no, happens. Never, never, never. Are you to and this I, day, uh, when's the last time you talked to Al Pacino? I run into him occasionally. I Last time I saw him, I think I was leaving a... a a restaurant, and I think he was arriving, and we stood and chatted for a few minutes. And uh, in fact, I uh, I wrote him a letter recently, about three or four months ago, uh, asking him to do my podcast. And uh, he demurred because he was very busy, but he wrote me a nice note back, and you know we kind of exchanged uh, uh, information more right. than anything. Do you yeah. do you keep in touch with any actors from any of the movies that you've done? Like oh, really yeah. keep in touch? You do. You become mm, friends oh. with a lot of people. It depends on the the circumstances of the movie. I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience too, where if the experience isn't great, then you probably end up staying away from those people. Have you had those and, where you don't like working with someone? Uh, yeah, yeah. And how do you deal I, I, with and that? And I won't speak ill of the dead. No. That's all I'll say. Right, but it, you just, uh, it wasn't a good experience. Oh, man. Oh, God. They put you through hell. Oh, Jesus. Uh, but uh, the Fright Night people, all we're all still friends. You know, I, I'm in touch with them, you know, maybe a couple of times a month. John Stark and Tom Holland and and Amanda Burris and Bill Ragsdale. Uh, but, you know, whenever we do a, a convention where the movie is featured, we get together and we sit and we talk and we eat and we laugh a lot. Yeah. We laugh a lot. Carrie uh, uh, Elwes and I stay in touch from Princess Bride. Wow. Uh, very much. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll uh, share a text with Rob Reiner. Um, but Carrie and I are very close friends. Did you have any idea? I mean, I know you liked the script and it drew you to, you know, you know, take the part, uh, in Fright Night as Jerry Dandridge, but did you, did you, while you were filming, did you say there's something special here? There's something different here? I thought so. Absolutely. You, you felt I thought that. The script was great. And also Tom knew exactly how he wanted to shoot the movie. He described it to me when we first met. He he went through it. So literally scene by scene, shot by shot. He described the I whole movie I love Tom to Holland. I love that man. I played tennis yeah, yeah. with him. He's, into his house. He's, a, he's, a, he's an extraordinary guy. Well, he obviously loved you because he brought you in the child's play as well. Yeah. Yeah. He fought. Tom fought for me on that movie. Really? The studio, yeah, the studio didn't want me and, and, and the producers. And Tom basically said, I, if I'm going to do this movie, I'm going to do it with him.
Yeah. I think, you know, you have this knack for you, you play some of these characters that are, you know, evil or dark, but you bring something to it that makes them so likable, which is very difficult to do. But it's also it makes the characters more likable and it, and the believability when you're doing Fright Night. That's one of the things that I loved is the, all the actors really committed. And it wasn't this farce. Yeah. It was like <clears throat> you had Roddy McDowell and everybody took their part and ran with it. And you played yeah. this villainous character, and yet you were so likable and charismatic. And is that something that you, they just offered you the role, right? Yes. Yeah. Did you yeah, did you I, come up with all these things, or did Tom give well, you a lot of direction? Well, we, we had a really nice collaboration in the making of the movie, and I have to credit Tom uh, tremendously for for both accepting my ideas and also offering me stuff that. Uh, that made the character particularly more seductive because that was an important element in the character. You know, the fact that you, you have to believe that that these uh, the victims are willingly going to this guy. Right. Uh, and and part of that is the fact that he has this kind of seductive charisma. Yeah. Uh, where he's he's very, very charming and uh, likable uh, when you when you meet him on a human level. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then there were also there was stuff like you know the the kind of leitmotif of of Jerry Dandridge eating the fruit, the apple. Uh, I, yeah, people talk. You know, I've talked about this a lot. But uh, uh, how do you create a, a background for a character who's not human? So you have to you know you have to come up with some some ideas. And one of the ideas I had was uh, well, let me check out vampire bats and see if there's anything there. And I discovered that. Uh, the majority, the like something like 90, 80, 90 percent of the bats that live in in nature are fruit bats. So I thought, well, what if there's a little what if there's a little fruit bat DNA in Jerry Dandridge uh, that he craves fruit? So Tom loved the idea and we worked it in. And and out of that came that great thing that he does cinematically where uh, um Charlie is sitting in the bushes spying on Jerry and Jerry walks out of the house and he's eating an apple and he takes a bite out of it and he knows Charlie's there and he throws the apple toward where Charlie's hiding yeah. and the apple rolls up and you see this, this grotesque bite that's come out of the apple that's not human. That's Tom taking my idea and turning it into something that's just, you know, um, a coup to whatever you want to call it. Uh, well, I have the poster right here. Uh, you're so cool, Brewster, Tom Holland. He signed my Fright Night poster. It's right across me. You can't see it. But oh, well, lastly, cool. about Fright Night, Roddy McDowell. I mean, what can you say? I uh, mean, are there any special stories you haven't told or that you remember little moments that you're like, wow, this guy's great? I just I just remember Roddy being so accessible and also being such a font of Hollywood history. And to me, that's, you know, mother's milk. I love those stories, the stories about the people he worked with. And he also, over the time, over the years that I got to know Roddy, he included us in his, in his life. Uh, and it, it so happened that my wife, Joanna, and he did a play together on the road. So she knew him really well. Wow. So we would go to his house and have dinner with, you know, the, uh, Folks, we, we never had dinner with Elizabeth Taylor, but <laughs> I, I, I held out the possibility at some point who, that we who, would. Who's the most famous person you've had dinner with? Besides Al Pacino, you've probably eaten with Al. Yeah, yeah, I've eaten with Al. Um, golly. Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Yeah, I did a movie with Sean in Spain. 
How was how was he? Oh, he was so great, Sean. A uh, very down to earth Scotsman. Uh, you know, this just this salt of the earth kind of guy who also was a very, very um, uh, conscientious actor and would love to run scenes and rehearse and 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 do the work. You know, Sean didn't just show up. He 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 knew what he was doing. So, uh, yeah, it was, he, he didn't just uh, depend on that amazing Sean Connery charisma. He was also somebody who worked hard at it. What do you talk to Sean Connery about at dinner? Oh, everything. Every, what, what did he want to well, talk he about? Wanted to talk, he wanted to talk about golf, <laughs> um, which wasn't very interesting to me. But we talked about the theater. We talked about uh, acting. We talked about movies. Uh, we talked about... Um, we also had the cast of that movie. This movie called Cuba, which has kind of disappeared. It was directed by Richard Lester who directed A Hard Day's Night and Help. Oh, wow. Uh, and The Three Musketeers, the earlier Three Musketeers. And, and Richard was a an in, very interesting guy um, who uh, didn't like making movies. <laughs> he loved editing movies, but he didn't like making them. So uh, there was a, a... So we talked a lot about Richard and, you know, our our uh, difficulties with Richard, uh, who was a charming, lovely man, but not f- not fun in terms of actually working. Did you get, um, yeah, did you get offered, uh, by the way, did you get offered Princess Bride? Was that an offer? No, I auditioned. You did? Yeah, I auditioned for Rob Rob Reiner and uh, Bill Goldman. How many times? William Goldman. Once. Once? Yeah. Did you have the English accent? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You poured it on? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just with a, you know, with a paintbrush and a, uh, a, a bucket and, you know, whatever I could... <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, no, it was actually, it was a fun audition because it was at uh, William Goldman's apartment on Central Park West. And I was on my way to the audition. And I remember I took a bus up uptown and I had the the New York Daily News, I think it was. And on the back page was the, the uh, as always, the sports section. I'm a big sports fan. And uh, I was pissed off because the Knicks had drafted a guy that I thought was a disaster, right? <laughs> right. And so I'm holding this paper, and for some reason, I knew the scene. I knew it, you know, I knew what I was doing. I felt confident. And I walked in, and they both, you know, Rob is such a, he's just such a mensch. Yeah. And, you know, he came up and he shook my hand. How you doing? Nice to meet you. How, how, how's it going? I love your, <laughs> I love your acting. You know, a wonderful career. Uh, and Bill Goldman, who is a little shy, and I, I said, well, I, I said, to be honest, I'm in a really kind of bad mood because the New York Knicks just drafted Kenny Walker. And Bill Goldman immediately perked up because he's a huge Knicks fan, right? And he and I started talking about this trade. Well, I mean, this uh, draft choice. And we talked for maybe 15 minutes. We were going on and on about the Knicks and how they'd fuck things up and that and that and that. And finally, Rob interrupted us, and he said, uh, "Excuse me, uh, uh, can I can I interrupt you guys? Would you mind reading, Chris?" And oh I said, my no, god! Of course not. And I read the scene, and after I and after I finished, not not after I finished, just the sort of penultimate line in the scene, Rob started laughing hilariously, and he's a great audience. It's one of his you know great talents. Right. And uh, I, after it was over. I said, he said, that was, that was perfect. That was just fucking fabulous. That was just great. And I realized that I played the scene very seriously. 
because comedy is a serious business. Yes. You know? Yeah. Uh, and 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 the the tone that I established in the scene was just what he was looking for, and that's what did it. So you didn't play it up at all. Do you remember the scene? Do you remember what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's where the, it's where Humperdinck says to her, "I hope you'll consider me as an alternative to suicide," because <laughs> she talks about how she's Buttercup is going to, you know, throw herself off a parapet or something. I can't remember exactly <laughs> what her line was, and and Humperdinck looks at her very sincerely because he can sell it. This guy. He knows how to sell it. And he says, sincerely, totally sincerely, I, I hope you'll consider me as an alternative to suicide. You can't play that line humorously, just as you can't, you know, I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan my, my wife to murder, Gilder to frame for it, I'm swamped. You can't say, you can't do that with, you know, you can't consider, what's the comic timing? Right, right. You know, you, you, just, have, to, you have to know what Humperdinck is after, at that at that moment in his life was there a lot of direction during the movie did he have direction for you or did you for the most part were doing your own thing i think that one of the things that rob does really well is he trusts casting she trusts his actors he believes strongly in casting the right people and um and except for a few things I would get some direction for rob and i would say okay and i would try it that way and then he'd say okay now try it your way and sometimes he'd take my take and sometimes he'd take his. But that's, you know, that's yeah. a joy to have that kind yeah, of director. Absolutely. You know, that, that there's a moment at the end of the movie where, uh, where um, Wesley says that they're confronting each other. And, and you know, the audience knows that Wesley is severely compromised, right? And Humperdinck is about to, to uh, engage him in swordplay and he's the world's greatest swordsman, except for, of course, Wesley and, and Indigo. And, uh, and, and, <clears throat> and Wesley says, uh, uh, Humperdinck says to him something like, you know, I know that you're compromised. I know that you're, you, 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 you're not, are you bluffing? And he says, um, drop that sword. And he sticks his sword out and Humperdinck drops the sword and goes and sits down, right? The coward beneath the facade right. comes out. And just as a natural thing, because of the costume, I took my, I took the tail of the costume and tucked it under me as I sat down. And Rob came over to me and thought, I think that's a little over the top. Can you not do that this time? And we did it the other way. And then he said, let's do it again and do it your way. <laughs> and that's the take he kept. Really? Yeah. And it's it's funny, but it's it's situational funny. Right. It's not, you know. Again, one of these movies where you're doing it, you're like, this is special. Again, did you feel that with this one? We knew that the this was a great script. We all loved the script. I'd read the book like 20 years before, and I just flipped over the book. And we all knew that it was a great script. The casting was just, uh, you know, out of this world. Uh and Rob's take on it was obviously the right, exactly the right tone all the way through. You don't, it's, and it's the same, I mean, it's actually similar in, in uh, Fright Night, in that you, you have fun with the genre, but you don't make fun of it. Right. You don't look at the audience and wink and say, we're, we're having fun with this, aren't we, folks? You play it totally straight. Right, that will kill it. The other way will yeah. kill it. Yeah, yeah. 
And so we knew that all that was in place. He had the best art director. He had the best, you know, the top of the line uh, British uh, period costume woman, Phyllis. I forgot Phyllis's last name now. Um, the makeup people were wonderful. The the DP was like one of the one of the top DPs in in England, um, Adrian Biddle, and. Uh, but at the same time, you know, as as William Goldman said in his great book about Hollywood, he said the quote that everybody quotes is nobody in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. <laughs> right. Yes. In this case, Rob knew exactly what he had. What the, was problematic was the marketing of the movie because right. nobody knew how to how to pigeonhole it. Right. Was it a romance? Was it a comedy? Was it a, an adventure? Was it a thrill? What was it? And so uh, when the movie first came out, the marketing was awful. Right. It was terrible. Uh, and so the movie did a sort of, you know, moderate amount of business. But over time, people discovered it and discovered what the tone of the movie was. And 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 it's become this multi-generational phenomenon. It's, you know, it's extraordinary what happened. Is, is but that, there's no, no way to know that that's going to happen. No. No way. Is that a character you think that if someone asked you to revisit it, you could just jump into it today? Oh, absolutely. You could. You could just jump a into it. Absolutely. We did it. We did, you know, we did the reading. We did the reading for uh, Wisconsin Democrats, and we made like something like five million bucks. Are you God's serious? Sake. Yeah. I got to listen. Where can I listen to that? Oh, I'm sure it's online somewhere. The Princess Bride reading with the, 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 yeah, with the whole cast, except for obviously Andre, who had passed away. How was and he? Andre How was Chung. Andre? A cutie pie. Really? Yes, the loveliest guy. And also the interesting, smart, uh, uh, and prodigious in so many ways. He was really, uh, he was an extraordinary human being, Andre. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, when you, you had to audition for Jack Skellington, The Nightmare Before Christmas, right? You auditioned yeah. for that? Yeah. I yeah. mean, talk about a role, that a gift that keeps on giving. Oh, boy. I mean. Here's so, the here's the luck in my life. Yeah, exactly. And that was, the, you didn't, you just auditioned. You Obviously, Tim Burton just heard your voice. You didn't meet him, right? Yes. And they, they had already done Danny Elfman's songs. So they knew what kind of voice they were looking for, for the speaking part of uh, Jack Skellington. And I guess, you know, again, serendipity that I had a, a vocal timbre that that matched Danny's singing. And uh, that's it. Do you do I, anything I'm, with your voice? Could you jump into it? Do you have a line you could say? Eureka! <laughs> Eureka! Hello, it's Jack. <laughs> Did you have to read twice or one audition? They're like, this is a guy. I just read once. And what was Tim Burton like? Uh, uh, Tim, uh, I think people who know the movie know he didn't direct it, that uh, Henry Selleck directed it. Wonderful stop action, stop motion action uh, animated director. And then I got together with Tim after ah. uh, for ADR. Uh, for uh, looping, uh, because he was uh, not satisfied with some of the line readings, and I was not satisfied with some of my own work. And so uh, I took some notes, and I went in, and Tim was very open about, you know, you want to make a change here, you want to try this, you want to try that. Uh, uh, he was great. He was really, and still is. I mean, whenever I see him, he's, you know, open arms, and uh, he's a lovely guy. 
So you're 80 years old. You don't feel 80. It's just a you number. You have to keep reminding it's me. Just, yes. I have to keep reminding <laughs> you. But what 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 else do you think you want to do? Is are you someone who are like I've done enough? Which obviously anybody who looks at your body works gone. He's done enough. He sh- he can do whatever he wants now. Or do you still love to work? Do you still love doing it? I don't love acting as I, I shouldn't say I don't love acting. <clears throat> I don't love what goes into it as much as I used to. Uh, because it's exhausting. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a hard job. Uh, I, I'm not complaining because all, all those years I, I've done it, I, I've enjoyed every moment, with the exception of one <laughs> one movie. One movie, uh, which you can't yeah. say, huh? Which you can't say. No, well, I can say sure. The Sentinel. That's one movie you didn't like from the beginning until the end. What, what was, was about that? The director. Really? Michael Winter, who was a, not a, I mean, again, speaking ill of the dead, but uh, I spoke ill of him when he was alive. You just didn't like uh, him. You didn't get along. He was a, he was a, a, a dick. He was a dick. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he did things on that film that were unforgivable with members of the, of, of the, uh, some of the extras. Uh, and some of the things he would say, he was a, a, a negative human being. Uh, he was. Um, I, 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 it I was one know. of those movies where you're like, "Wow, I, he's making me hate acting for this movie." Yeah. I, I, hate I literally, acting. I, I literally quit for a while. I, I literally, I didn't know what to do. I was so disillusioned. Uh, I ended up going to Africa. Uh, I said, I'm getting out of the country. I got to, I got to completely wash my system of this, uh, and hopefully wow. I'll feel refreshed when I come back. And uh, I ultimately I did, but boy, I was, uh, I, I almost, and I, and the reason was because I did it for all the wrong reasons. I did it for money. I did it for uh, the fact that I was becoming a movie star and a leading man, and. Uh, uh, I thought, well, this is the next step. I'm going to become even a bigger movie star. And so I did it for all the wrong reasons. It had nothing to do with the work. It had nothing to do with the material. Uh, and so I learned my lesson. Wow. Never did it again. How long did it take to you before you got back to acting? Oh, God, six months at least. I was gone. I, I you know, It took me a week or two to, to figure out how to get out of the country and where to go. I talked to some people who had been to Africa, and I, I went to Kenya and Tanzania by myself, and I drove around for two weeks, just driving through, you know, game reserves. And, and what year was this? Oh God, I'd have to look it up. <laughs> were you were you, were you married at the time? Uh, no, you no, weren't. Was, so that's why you had the, the freedom. I was, like, I was separated. Name. Yeah, yeah. I was. I was by then. By then, I had separated. Susan and I had separated. Right, man. But you learned a lot from it. I mean, yeah, again. absolutely. You know, if it hadn't been for that movie, I, I'd have kept going on that path. Right. And uh, would have been a very unhappy guy, ultimately. This is called Shit Talking with Chris Sarandon. This is These, <laughs> these are my top tier patrons. This is Rapid Fire. If you want to become a patron, you get to ask some questions. Go to patreon.com slash inside of you. I love you. Oh, cool. I'll email you back. They're great. They're amazing. And uh, they oh, have some fabulous. questions. So you could. this is Rapid Fire. If you want, if okay. you feel like uh, elaborating, you certainly can. Yeah. Sure. Um, Michelle Kay, you've sort of talked about this a little bit, but maybe there's a story you could share. Any fun behind the scenes stories you can share on the filming of Princess Bride, or at least one? Uh, walking through the halls of a of a an old uh, medieval castle that we shot in called Haddon Hall, and uh, as I'm heading toward 
uh, shooting a scene, suddenly I hear Rob Reiner, Chris Guest, and Mandy Patinkin singing doo-wop. <laughs> doo-wop. Doo-wop. Did you sing with them? Uh, I, sadly, no. No. I, I, one of the regrets, only regret I have from that shoot. Uh, we already asked this. Emily asked, did you have any good memories from working on the set with Andre the Giant? You, you already mentioned that. I mean, he was uh, Yeah, uh, Andre was actually, I never worked specifically right, with Andre, right. but I got to be around him a lot. And he was just, yeah, he was a fabulous guy. In fact, I have, do have a great story about Andre. Say it. Uh, my daughters at the time were uh, three and a half and two. And I'm heading to England and I had to be on location so they didn't come with me in the beginning because we were in a hotel uh, up in the, you know, Derbyshire somewhere. And uh, and so I said, OK, I'm going to I'm going to England and uh, I, I'm going to be and there's a princess in the movie. And I'm assuming they're going to go, oh, really? And nothing. And <laughs> and then uh, there's a sword fight and then there's a giant. And as soon as I, the word giant got out of my lips, both of my girls perked up and they started throwing, per- peppering me with the question. What's the giant like, Daddy? How big is he? Is he as big as a house? Is he as big as a car? Is he really, really big? Could he pick you up and squash you? You know, just kids, right? <laughs> so every time, now I'm on location, every time I talk to them, they're, as soon as I say, hi, kitties. Hi, baby. How are you? Daddy loves you. He misses you. Hi, Daddy. Where's the giant? <laughs> is he as big as a house? Is he as big as a car? <laughs> Same thing, right? So finally, they come to England. And I realized they have to meet Andre. So I go to Andre and I say, can the kids say, yeah, sure, boss. So we, so one day he's working when I'm not working, the scene where he rescues Mandy, the uh, Indigo, from, he's in the brute, he's the brute squad, right? right. And uh, I, we go to his trailer. His trailer is as big as a boxcar because he couldn't get into the makeup trailer. And he's sitting down at the end, right? And I'm holding one of my kids and my ex-wife is holding the other. And we walk up the steps and turn the corner and we look down the length of the, the makeup trailer and Andre gets up. And suddenly the reality hits my girls and they start screaming at the top of their lungs. <laughs> but in this, you know, high pitched thing that little girls right, can do right. that can shatter they your nerves. They freaked out. They, and they wouldn't stop. And so I take them away and I go back to apologize to Andre. And I say, Andre, Andre, I'm so sorry. And he said, don't worry, boss. They either run to me or they run away from me. <laughs> and that was his experience because he was the most oh. famous person in the world almost. Yeah. Wow. I would have loved to meet But he Andre handled it beautifully. Oh, that is amazing. Sheila yeah. G just says, favorite mo- memory from working on Nightmare Before Christmas. Do you have any famous me- uh, favorite memories? The first time I walked into the studio in San Francisco where we were shooting and there were the storyboards were on the walls and I got to look at the sets and and watch those extraordinary artists who who actually did the stop motion. Do you have a lot of toys? Do you have a lot of Jack Skellington toys at the house? I actually I have a, a four or five of his the original heads, Jack heads, cuz there were 400 of them. Wow. And I have the chalkboard which is, I'm looking at it now in my office. It's over at the other side of the room uh, that Jack writes on when he's trying to figure out the formula for Christmas. Right. Yeah. Do you, do you keep anything else from other sets? Anything else? Uh... I used to keep flags. I have Prince Humperdinck's flag. Uh, I played Abe Lincoln a couple of times on PBS. I have a couple of uh, old Union flags from that time. 
Um, I can't remember the other ones I have, but I used to keep stuff like that. But I don't, I don't have a lot of stuff. No. Right. So wait, did you say you wanted to start? You're starting a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's it called? Do you know what's it going to be? It's called Cooking by Heart. I grew up in a restaurant, so uh, I'm talking to friends of mine, and hopefully you and I will have this conversation at some point. Yeah. And we talk about how we grew up around food, what it was like around the dinner table when you were five years old, six years old, 10, 12, 15, whatever. And the stories that come out are extraordinary. You, you wouldn't believe some of the stuff that, that happens in these conversations. I don't know if you'd want to talk to me because my mom used to make a lot of frozen foods. <laughs> That's part of what comes out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, also, also it ends up being about, it's not just about the food, it's about the people and the stories attached to the, those times in your life. What's it going to be called? Do you have any idea yet? Cook, cooking by Heart. Oh, Cooking by Heart is the title. Yeah. And yeah. when is that going to be available? Title. Uh, uh, we're shooting for a, uh, an early fall launch. Amazing. And where could they yeah, go already, to find this? I mean, they, I guess just wherever you get your podcast, wherever you're, yeah, wherever you find your favorite podcast, I'm leaving that up to other people. And I, I are can. you on social media? I am. And what's yeah. your, what's your Instagram? Uh, my Instagram is, uh, the, the Chris Sarandon. <laughs> I, I have to look it up. Look it up. <laughs> You got to follow this guy. He's a legend. Yeah, for yeah. God's sake, wait a minute. Guys. Wait a minute. It's because I have. Oh, it's the official Chris Sarandon. The official yeah. Chris yeah, Sarandon. Official. Follow right, him. Right. Carrie always follows him. Many people follow him. He's a delight. This has been a real joy. I love hearing stories. I love hearing. You know, truthfully, I've seen. I've loved so many of your of, of your movies. And thank um, you, Michael. I just love. I love meeting you and and getting to know you a little bit better and. I got to know you a lot more today, and I think Thank everyone you, else will. This has been a real treat. Listen to his new podcast. It's coming out. Follow him on Instagram, The Legendary Chris. Chris Sarandon. I have a, web, a website as well, chrissarandon.com. chrissarandon.com. And, uh, hey, I, I really thank, thank you for taking the time. Oh, please. My pleasure. My pleasure. All right. I'm going to keep in touch with you, whether you All like right, it or friend. not. That's a deal. All right. Fine. Okay. I'll fine. see you later. It was just really enjoyable. I wish that he was here in person. He mm-hmm. wasn't, but uh, just a wonderful guy. He does not appear to be 80 years old. I couldn't no. believe. It's amazing how he looks. I hope I look like that. I hope I'm in shape like he is. And then I saw him, uh, you know, after we recorded this, I saw him at a con and just gave me the biggest hug and it was so sincere and sweet. Uh, Chris Sarandon, folks. Um, yeah, legend, legend. Uh, let's do it. Let's do the, uh, the shout outs. These are the top tier patrons. Go to patreon.com slash inside of you. Uh, again, uh, these patrons get their names shouted out at the end of every episode. Some have been here since the beginning, since the inception of the show or since patron patron started, or I started doing it and, uh, couldn't thank you more. Couldn't thank you enough. Here we go. Nancy D. Leah S, Sarah V, Little Lisa, Yukiko, Jill E, Brian H, Nico P, Robert B, Jason W, Sophie M, Raj C. Joshua D, Jennifer N, Stacy L, Jamal F, Janelle B, Kimberly E, Mike E, Eldon Supremo, 99 more, Santiago M, Chad W, correct, Leanne P, Janine R, Maya P, Maddie S, Belinda N, Chris Sarandon. No. <laughs> H. Chris H is yep. right. Dave. Yep. H. Dave H is right. Sheila. G. Brad. D. Ray. H. Yes. Tabitha. T. Tom. N. Liliana. A. Talia. C. No. M. Betsy. D. Chad. 
D. L. Marion, Dan, N, Big Stevie, W, Angel, uh, I don't remember. M, Rhiannon, C, Corey, L, Corey K, Deb Nexon, Michelle A, Jeremy C, Andy T, Gavinator, David C, Ryan's upset with himself, John B, Brandy D, Camille S, Joey M, Eugene N, Leah, correct, Nikki G, Corey, Katie B, Patricia, Heather L, Megan T, Mel S, Orlando C, Caroline R, Christine S, Sarah S, Eric H, Shane R, Emma R, Jeremy V, Andrew M, Zatoichi, 77, hi, Zatoichi, Oracle, Chris R, Karina N, Michelle D, Amanda R, Jen B, Kevin E, Stephanie K, Len, uh, Lena, 82, Jorel, Billy S., you know what's nice is seeing a lot of those names are also patrons on Talkville. Or Talkville, and they haven't left me on this show. Nice. You guys haven't left me. You've stuck with me. And uh, I don't know what else to say, but thank you. Thank you so much for sticking around. Until next time, we will see you on the flip side uh, from the Hollywood Hills in California. I am Michael Rosenbaum. I am Ryan Taylor. We appreciate you. A little wave to the camera. And uh, as always, be good to yourself. Do what you have to do. Try to enjoy this. I was going to say get through the day, but mm -hmm. don't get through the day. Enjoy the day. Embrace the day, man. Uh, all right. We'll talk to you next week. See you, Ryan. Bye. Later. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.